the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord, and to my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Well, in case you didn't know, we have arrived at April, and maybe you were surprised by some April Fool's joke of some kind, but um, the weather is getting warmer. Naturally, when we come to April, we are we often begin to think about Easter, but we must first go through this sorrowful week, the Passion Week, in which we know our, our Lord will suffer for us out of love. But that suffering, that exhibition of total generosity, is not just for those who were there at the time to witness it, those who saw the actual carrying of the cross and the crucifixion. It was not only for them, it was also for us. And he devised a way in which we could continue to adore him now and continue to love him in a very real, real way now, just not just as a memory, but as a real presence. And that he did during the Last Supper. He prepared it all during the Last Supper. That was his, his last master stroke. And that came with the institution of the Holy Eucharist, the, the central mystery of our faith. And it really has to fill us with true wonder that the Lord really wanted to stay with us in such a real way. And he wanted to stay with us in the Paschal mystery. And the truth about the Holy Eucharist, uh, the Mass, has become really central to our faith and central to our vocation. Central even to our day-to-day -day life. As you know, many people go to Mass every day. Many people at least visit a church when they can. And it really expresses the reality the truth of those words, I will be with you until the end of the age. It was Edith Stein, this Jewish woman who lived in Breslau in the 1920s and 30s, who she was Jewish, she had become atheist and started to, started to study philosophy. She was very, very bright. And one day she was in Breslau and she was doing her studies and she went to the marketplace and she was going around buying stuff and then she saw this, this Catholic church and she saw a lady go in. It was, there was no mass, there was nothing. It was just during the day, she said, I wonder where, what this lady is going to do. So she saw this lady go in and the church was pretty much empty, one, one or two people here and there. But this lady went and simply knelt down in a pew and just seemed to pour her heart out there to our Lord in the tabernacle. 
And uh, Edith Stein stayed in the dark, in behind, trying not to be noticed. And she was very impressed by the fact that there was no service going on, there was nobody preaching, there was no nobody reading something outlined that could be heard. There was no actual service. But a number of people, including this woman, were there as though there was somebody alive there that they were speaking to, that they could go and confide in, and that he in turn was speaking towards them. And that lady then took up her bags and, you know, just, well, went on her way. And this made a profound impact on Edith Stein. It was the beginning of the realization that God is still here present in some way and alive there, somebody you can speak to in a church, not just an empty church. It was the beginning of a long process that eventually led to her conversion to the Catholic faith, and eventually she entered uh, the monastery, or she, the convent rather, and, um, and it was the, you know, the beginning of a, a great adventure for her, and so we understand, like Edith Stein did on that day, that not only is he alive and he stays, but if he is alive and he stays, he also continues to love us as what we call sometimes the prisoner of the tabernacle. He's a prisoner. It's locked. That tabernacle is locked. But he knows we can visit him like that lady. And we can talk to him. We can pour out our heart. And that's why Pope John Paul II wrote a beautiful encyclical letter called Ecclesia de Eucharistia, in which he expressed the desire to rekindle our wonder at the Eucharist, which he called the source and summit of the Christian life, and that we rekindle. And we like, like on a fire that's going out, you have to blow on it, you have to rekindle it, put kindling on it, so it starts to become truly a raging fire. And this is what we can tell our Lord now. Lord, I, I want to do this. I want to rekindle the love and my passion for, for the daily Mass and just the reality of what's going on when I go to Mass. I want to rekindle. Maybe, maybe I've gotten a little bit lukewarm. And I want to also rekindle the power within me of that example that you gave during the Last Supper when you, right there in front of everyone, decided to wash the dirty feet of your apostles. And that moment, that was before you instituted the Eucharist, but it is the moment that is prefaced by St. John's words Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own. And now he really showed them how. And so, St. John devotes a large part of his gospel in this section, chapter 13 to chapter 17, just to recount Jesus' teaching to his apostles during that Last Supper. I mean, that, that, that was an incredible Last Supper. And it's in this section that he tells us things that are, that are not reported in the synoptics, that is in, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. St. John talks about the washing of the feet, and then he omits the institution of the Eucharist because he had already spoken about it in other sections, in, like in chapter 
in chapter 6, but also because St. Paul had spoken about it and had transmitted that teaching. And, uh, and so he focuses on the washing of the feet. But this phrase, having loved his own, having loved his own, and then he talks about how he, he knelt down, he put a washcloth on him, and, and then got a, a basin of water and began to wash their feet. It underlines how important this moment was. It's kind of like an x-ray version that would constitute, you, you could say, three points. St. John narrates the washing of the feet. Then, that's the first point of the x-ray, then he explains why he did this. Now, as I have done this, you too must do it. And then, the commandment of love, the new commandment, those three points. But then he also predicts uh, the denial of the, or the, the betrayer. He, den he denounces the betrayer, Judas. But he also predicts the denial of St. Peter. St. Peter, who was the head. And all these things come together and make a really, really rich teaching that are worthwhile going over during the weeks that precede uh, Easter, and, and even during Easter for that matter. Chapters 13 to 17 in St. John. And when we really get into that, that Last Supper, it can fill us with a lot of peace. It really can. You know, because right now, in this time, you could say that we are in stressful times. And we can get down by all the pressures around us. The inexperience we may have in facing these things, the maybe for some of us the intense pressure at work or the the tiredness from accumulated work or or responsibilities that we all have. Then the anxieties associated with work or the anxieties associated with all the news that we're getting that's often very, very negative about the world, about the war in Ukraine right now, and so many other stories about our world. It's like a, it's imagine our life is something, imagine like a, a gigantic plastic jug, you know, one of those transparent jugs that and that jug is constantly receiving a stream of water pouring in, and the water is coming in, and 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 the water level in that jug, of course, rises, right? And it's at it's at the danger of just overflowing. And uh, when it overflows, when that water overflows in that jug, it's it's when we explode. We have a meltdown, as we say. Sometimes. The water just dribbles in gently. It's just the daily stress, anxiety of daily life, having to get up in the morning and doing our chores, doing our work, our studies. It's like a it's like a drip, or sometimes it starts to get a little bit hard. The water gets, but sometimes it's just like pouring in there, and the water jug fills up, and that's when it overflows, and we explode. And everybody has seen YouTube videos of road rage, right? Or people on a plane freaking out because whatever. 
they had to wear their mask or, or something. People misbehaving in some crazy way or altercations in the family or foul words that come out or angry outbursts or the overflowing could be expressed simply in giving in to sin or giving in to sadness and we go, oh, poor me, this is happening to me and sometimes it can be expressed in forms of giving in to unhealthy and sinful compensations in the area of sensuality or we just eat all the chips we can find or something like that or something unhealthy or something they just I've got to go to McDonald's and just have three Big Macs right now (laughs) because they feel sad they feel down the water is overflowed they have a kind of a paralyzing sadness now that normally the dribble of the water in that jug yeah that's pretty normal we all have little stresses right it's kind of normal we're not like those cats that sit in the windowsill and just watch the traffic pass by nothing perturbs them right nothing you know somebody comes to the door they look over whatever you know they just look at the mailman they don't even care you know they just and you come hello kitty and they're just what you know they just they just turn to you completely nothing perturbs them we're not like maybe we're more like those dogs as soon as somebody rings the doorbell we go f- flying you know but uh, you know but we certainly can't be like those cats and we can't be like those dogs either right so but what is clear is that that jug will continue to fill and we have to find those like good ways of let's say, puncturing that jug so that the water will release and alleviate the pressure. What things can alleviate the pressure of, of all the stresses of daily life of the water coming into that jug? Well, there's, certainly we have to rest. We have to get our rest. We have to sleep. We have to go to bed on time. We can't be looking at our phone at, uh, late into the night and scrolling through Instagram. We have to, we have to get our sleep. We have to get our our exercise but especially we have to get that quiet time with Jesus like what we're doing right now just quiet time look at him know that he loves us and he has loved us to the end we look at him there as the prisoner of the tabernacle these things can calm us they also prevent the jug from overflowing. When we're stressed and anxious, okay, let's come here, talk to our Lord. Or sometimes we just have to go for a run or, or, or go do some exercise, but especially just come here. He's always waiting. Hmm? Sometimes just the fact of kind words or kind acts of service to someone can be a way of calming us. We suddenly feel... I just did something good. I did something good. And then we spread that goodness to others. We don't lose love by giving it to others, by giving an act of love or or giving an act of affection or warmth to somebody. We don't lose it. We don't get lower. We, We somehow grow in the love and they grow too. 
And how happy, how happy the apostles felt when Jesus washed their feet. You know, I've always imagined, you know, what would it be like you know, to, watch, to, to watch Jesus say, okay, take your socks off. First take your shoes off. Now take your socks off. And now what? What are you going to do? I'm going to wash your feet. And probably he arranged that the, the water was warm. You know, and maybe he had two buckets, one with soap and one with water. I don't know. But uh, no, he, he washed those apostles' feet not just because they needed to be cleaned from the dust of the, of the city or the dust of their walking of the day, but he did that because it made them rest. It made them realize that they were loved. That they were loved. And it, it made them rest. It made them also want to do this themselves. But first of all, it made them rest. It made them happy. I saw a mother once with her little son who was... I don't know, maybe five years old or something, and he had a tummy ache, tummy ache, and he was complaining about the tummy ache. And I was very touched to see the the mother went up to him and she said, "Well, so what do you want? Do you want to do you want a toast with uh, marmalade?" He goes, "No, I want it with uh, a bit of uh, butter and peanut butter. Butter and peanut butter, okay." And do you want it on both sides? Do you want it like this? Like she knew exactly what he wanted, right? And he said, and he, like he was being very, you know, detailed. Then she came, she prepared it for him, she gave him that plate. And then the little tummy, the tummy ache went away. I mean, she just received her love, you know, that, that was clear, you know. He was just wanting a little bit of love. And that's, the, that's what the apostles felt. Maybe... Peter or others thought, well, maybe, why didn't I think of that? I could have done that. And they, they later would have done that in some way to others. And maybe after that they would have been thinking, well, how can I outdo myself as well with the others? That's the, all the, the preface to the new commandment. And we have to live that out. You know? We have to also be able to say that the that we love them to the end, that we love others to the end, that we give ourselves to the end. And it won't stress us. It won't be too much for us. The water won't overflow. Now, you know that in, in Jewish families, certainly at the time, they, they would sacrifice a lamb on the eve of the Passover in keeping with God's command at the time of the exodus from, from Egypt when God liberated them from the slavery of Pharaoh. And they had to eat fast. And there were all, all reasons how, how they lived that. And they commemorated that liberation. But ultimately, that liberation prefigured that which Jesus Christ would now bring about. The redemption of men from the slavery, not of Egypt, but the slavery of sin. And he would do that through the sacrifice of the cross. And that is why the celebration of the Jewish Passover was, you could say, it was like the perfect storm. It was the perfect, ideal framework for the institution of the Christian Passover, which would be the Mass, which was a, a preparation for the ultimate Mass, which was the cross. So, 
know, Jesus knew everything that he was doing. He knew everything that was going to happen. Like in a few minutes, this was going to happen. He knew all that was, you know, all the events that were unfolding. He knew about his death. He knew about, well, the, the betrayal of Judas. He knew everything that was going to happen. He knew about the resurrection, that all these things were imminent in his mind. And that is why all the things he's doing in the context of the Last Supper, everything seems to acquire a very special tone of intimacy, of love towards those whom he is leaving behind in the world. Because he knows he's going to go. They don't understand that. They don't know that. They think he's going to be with them for the next 30 years. And there will be his followers, and you know, this is going to be, we're going to be super famous. And but he didn't want them to simply have a, an emotional response. Surrounded there by those who really believed in him, he gives them this final teaching: the institution of the Eucharist, the source, the center, really, and the life of the Church. That's why we can say he loved them to the end by cleaning their feet, but also by leaving them this testimony of his real life. It's like he kept the best for the last because it is like the missing, the missing key, the missing stone in this whole building that he is creating now, the, the, the building of the church. And the last thing was the Eucharist. Back in 1975, uh, Pope... Paul VI gave a beautiful homily on Holy Thursday where he said this I thought it was quite a beautiful articulation of what our Lord did he said he said he himself wished to give that encounter such a fullness of meaning such a richness of memories such a moving image of words and thoughts, such a newness of acts and precepts that we can never exhaust our reflection and our exploration of it. It was a testamentary supper, infinitely affectionate and immensely sad. At the same time, a mysterious revelation of divine promises of supreme visions. Death was imminent with silent omens of betrayal, of abandonment, of immolation. The conversation dies down, but Jesus continues to speak in words that are new, but beautifully reflective in almost supreme intimacy almost hovering between life and death it's, a, it's quite a it's quite an amazing description of the last supper yeah, these words are hovering between life and death wow and so you could say that what our lord did for his own can be summed up in that sentence he loved them to the end like all the way it shows the intensity of his love which which brings him to even give up his own life. But this love does not stop with his death. Because Christ lives on after his death. 
not only in the singular miracle of his resurrection, but continues to love us infinitely right now. Because after all, that Eucharist that we have there, the real presence, is not just the flesh of Christ, like a body in the sense like, like, a, like, a, like a dead body. It's the living, risen Christ. He's alive. Just like when he appeared to the apostles. And in such an intense moment, it is logical that the devil will try to sabotage what is going on. He's ready to sabotage it. He is the enemy. He does not rest. And he doesn't rest in our lives either. He wants to sabotage. He wants you to be unhappy, sad. Of course, one area that the devil tries to sabotage the story of the whole last leper is the malice of Judas. Poor Judas, you know, in his heart he's, he was hardened to all this love, all these overtures of our Lord, all his humble gestures. He was still, I mean, Jesus was still trying to win over Judas. But Judas said, no, I'm not going to be moved by this. He thought, this is silly. It's a farce. He thought. He was just like distracted and he like, it's like he missed the beauty of it all. And yet Jesus is so good that he, he's, he's, he's not angered or embittered by Jesus' malice. He reaches out to him. In fact, he goes beyond the malice of Judas by washing also his feet. He washed Judas' feet. He treats him like a friend, as we, should, we also should treat those around us like friends, even those who may have done us harm. We always have to forgive. And uh, Jesus does this service like, like the service that are proper to household servants. Servants that were barely recognized and people just didn't pay attention to them. And he does that service. Like Mary, who said, uh, I am the handmaid of the Lord. I too want to serve. We can reiterate that today now. Where's my true life? What is the attitude I have towards others? Uh, do I give myself in little chores? Uh, do I serve? Uh, do I serve by giving and showing affection, listening to others in the family, or my friends? Let us ask our Blessed Mother, who is the handmaid of the Lord. She knew more than anyone, really, how to serve. She'll teach us in this intimate moment, in this preparation for Easter, as we are soon going to enter in a couple of weeks into Holy Week. How can this really uh, embed itself in our own life? I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.